everybody, this is Wayne, and this is the Green Pub Podcast, or at least it is for now. We're actively in deliberations uh, to possibly change the name of the podcast to something new. And stay tuned for more, because you'll get a chance to chime in on that before we do it. But the guest today on the podcast is someone I've wanted to have on the podcast since we started, and that is the founder of PETA, Ingrid Newkirk. Ingrid is not just the executive director and president, or I think she's the executive director, maybe she's just the president of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. She's really, in my view, one of the two people on this planet who've had a bigger impact on animal rights than anyone else, and the other person being Peter Singer. And they got started around the same time, in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, and Ingrid has told a lot of stories about the adventure she's gone on, the protest, getting investigated by the IRS and the FBI, um, releasing and rescuing animals from horrific places. But she hasn't said a lot about her personal story. And I've always been curious as to the nature of that personal story, because I've heard the professional stories about this legendary focus, living a Spartan lifestyle, you know, an apartment with no furniture. And I don't even know which one, one of the stories is true and which are not, but there are a lot of stories told about how remarkable and unusual and impressive Ingrid Newkirk is. But to really understand how we can reach that same level of focus and impact, I think you got to understand the person underneath it all. And, and that's what this podcast does. We peel back a little bit from that cover and Here's some stories about Ingrid experiencing and seeing discrimination as a child in India. I didn't even know she was growing up in India. Um, but the other thing about this podcast is it, we, we tell a story, or I tell the story of a, one of the most shameful <laughs> experiences of my life. And I don't want to give it away, but it's an experience where I was arrested protesting Ingrid Newkirk. Now, if you're wondering, why the hell were you protesting here in Newkirk? First of all, that's a good question. <laughs> but to get the answer, you're going to have to listen to the pod. So anyways, it was a lot of fun. I always love talking to Ingrid. She's such a generous, charismatic, energetic person, and apparently also an introvert, which I first learned today, you know, in this podcast. But to, to really, you know, get the full impact of these stories, you need to hear them directly from her. So without further ado, here's Ingrid Newkirk. Ingrid, I am so excited to have you on the show. When I started this podcast, you were actually one of the first people I thought, I want to have Ingrid on this podcast and finally get a chance to do this. But the first question I have for you is, what are you going to do with these 4,000 dogs? <laughs> How are you holding up? I mean, it's an amazing success, but I imagine you're so busy right now trying to find homes for 4,000 beagles. Actually, other people are doing some heavy lifting. Really? Okay. They're very, very lucky. I mean, we did the undercover investigation. Okay. And so our person was in there for many months and documenting all the dogs and the puppies with their feet and their heads caught in bars and dying in the ditches and all this sort of stuff. And that's the catalyst that started the whole ball rolling. But... Um, we worked with the legislature in Virginia. We worked with the Department of Justice, all these things. But now it's the culmination is wonderful in that there are mother dogs with puppies there who will never know what a scalpel is. They will never go into another metal cage box as long as they live. They'll never not be killed in experimentation. But the Humane Society of the United States and other groups have come together because their forte is placement okay and so um, while we have the original dog samson mm. who our investigator got who came out of there after eight years wayne eight years with completely oh. rotted teeth with a urinary tract infection with a skin problem and is the sweetest dog you could ever imagine mm. um we have a few of the others but really other people are going to do the placement part well, that's awesome. I love seeing the movement work together. And I don't know why more people are talking about this. It was in the New York Times just a few days ago. This is one of the three largest beagle breeding facilities in the nation. And, you know, most Americans, in my experience, don't actually know that dogs are being tortured for science and in some of the most ridiculous experiments. So, you know, dumb things like laundry detergent and Ridgeland, the facility that I'm involved in, involved in as a euphemism. But, you know, one of the experiments they did recently, their dogs were sent to, was just for another, another artificial sweetener. Anyway, oh, it's absurd. You know, <laughs> the most ridiculous still, stuff. It's been all these years. 
And by design of the experimentation community, the vivisectors who profit so mightily from continuing to use animals and who don't want to switch to anything more modern because it would ruin their mortgage payments or whatever they're doing, mm -hmm. um, the majority of people, well, maybe not the majority, but a lot of people still think it's probably a limited number of animals. They're treated very well. Um, they're respected for their service. Mm -hmm. And they are used in these life-saving ways when, as you say, they're used for every damn fool thing that anybody could ever come up with. You wonder if the people who devised these experimental protocols are on hallucinogenics or they're just mad. Yeah. And it, they're all absolutely insupportable, indefensible. Yeah. And even the people who I think don't have that sort of inherent evil in them. I've, I've spoken to people who've been undercover investigators, as I'm sure you have at these vivisection facilities. And when they're screening people, they actually actively tell you, hey, you can't have too much compassion. And if you do, you really need to start suppressing it because we're going to start teaching you to do some really bad things and you better get used to it. This is part of their training. You know, we, we've been in so many, we've done so many undercover investigations in laboratories and in animal suppliers to laboratories. And it's funny in a way how often we capture managers, supervisors, owners saying on tape, well, you're not a PETA member, are you? You don't work for PETA, do you? Yeah. Um, you those kinds of things, how they screen out people who might be empathetic uh, or sympathetic to the animals. And that, of course, as you know, is why they don't like to give them names. The, it's not, you know, Sally and John as the dogs. It's uh, monkeys from the Silver Spring Lab were Caligula and Dominion and all these emperors' names. And they call animals Budweiser or uh, all these just or they give them numbers. That's the most common thing. And we've even had in England, baby monkey with um, crap tattooed on her head. The wow. word crap tattooed on her forehead. Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of this concept of the cold joke. Have you heard of this concept of a cold joke? Not sure. So there's a philosopher named Jonathan Glover. He's, uh, he's actually a Brit. Like, you're originally Brit, right? You've got, yeah, you're a Brit. <laughs> And he wrote this book called Humanity that's just kind of a history of atrocities through human history. And one of the things he finds is that in every atrocity, whether it's a Holocaust, you know, the internment of Japanese people in the United States, uh, the rape of Nanking in, in my parents' home country of China, the use of humor to desensitize people by saying, basically making fun of the plight of this oppressed class of individuals, even when they're going through just horrific nightmare shit, you laugh about it and just relieves the tension a little bit. So putting crap on a monkey's head when you're about to torture them, it's like, ah, ha, ha, ha. you know, it, it kind of diffuses the tension and makes you think, okay, maybe it's not that bad because I'm able to laugh about this. And it's, it's kind of a deflection, this weird mechanism of distracting people from the horror that they're inflecting on this poor, vulnerable creature. Yes, that, that definitely is. Yeah, I've heard that's definitely one reason that it can be done. It's sort of like gallows humor or, you know, the humor that you hear in funeral parlors sometimes. But also I think there's a more insidious thing that's going on is the absolute disrespect and disregard for your victim. And it doesn't really matter who your victim is, the species, the gender, who cares? The victim you have is the feeling of power over that individual. And I've seen time and time again, I think you've seen our factory farm investigation where the man drops a cinder block onto a mother sow's head and laughs and laughs. And we've seen people do such things like that and think it's funny, is that it's a power game too. Is And you see it with people who have human victims is they poke them around or they torture them just to see what they're going to do. You saw it at Abu Ghraib. Mm -hmm. I mean, looked at what people do when they're in power. And we see it in prisons with wardens. We see it in old folks' homes, assisted living facilities. And, and those, you see it all the time. So I think it's not only a coping mechanism, but it's a power paradigm. Yeah. It reminds me of the quote from Lord Acton, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it's, it's ironic because we live in this country that in 1776, we went to war 
to hold power accountable. We designed a constitution to say, you know, checks and balances, three branches of the government to ensure no one branch gets too out of control and has too much power over the entire nation. And, and yet when it comes to the most powerless beings, the most vulnerable beings, there's no accountability at all. And, and there's not enough conversation. And for all the efforts we've made, and, and I think we've made a lot, and I definitely want to talk about more of them because, I, you know, every time I'm, I'm unhappy about the movement, actually, I've, I don't think I ever told you this, PETA makes some of the best year-end videos. Your year-end videos are so happy and exciting and optimistic. You watch these videos and you're like, yeah, this is great. You know, we're rolling. And, and it's because you do so many things and you have a lot of concrete victories. But uh, the point I was going to make is that when you when you look deeper into how we actually treat the most powerless, it, it starts to feel very dark and hypocritical and, and cynical. And and I think escaping that pessimism is actually one of the most important things we have to do as animal rights activists. Because I so I know so many animal rights activists are just broken by falling into that gaping pit of despair. Um, so actually, it leads me to my next question. You're always obviously leading all these hundreds of people at PETA and, and millions of people who support PETA around the world, including me. You know, I got started as a PETA activist in the early 2000s. I still remember getting my first box of leaflets from PETA for free, for the record. PETA always gives grassroots activist stuff for free. And, you know, when you're used to like doing ragtag grassroots stuff and like printing leaflets yourself, trying to get the funding for them, and they're like these crappy black and white leaflets that don't even have a picture of an animal on them. And then you get a box of leaflets from PETA that are nice and glossy and color. I will say, I think that's one of the most effective things you all do, just supporting grassroots actives. When they want to go out and do something, Pete is there to help you. But you're, you're always thinking about the volunteers, the staff members, obviously the animals. And you know, every time you give a talk, it's the most powerful thing about the presentations you give for me is always the stories of the animals. And it always brings tears to people's eyes because you're such a great presenter and because you have so many compelling stories. But I've literally never heard anyone ask you this question, which is just, how are you holding up? Are you okay? Like the last few years have been really hard for everyone. Actually, the last few years have been quite interesting. I mean, in that they've been terrible in many respects, but they've also been very good in some respects, as we also know. It's been quite a mixed bag. I think society needed to slow down. It needed to stop consuming as much as it was doing. It needed to stop overrunning wilderness areas. And it was grand to see the bears going out in Yellowstone, the deer going out in parks with their children, mm -hmm. able to frolic instead of run and hide. And we had the end of rodeos for a long time. Unfortunately, Pamplona's bull run has just started, but it was absent for two years. We had bull rings actually in Spain converted into parking garages. I mean, many things changed. Horse races were over. It was just grand in some ways. And the ocean started to look better. There was less pollution, less air pollution. So, you know, you take the good and the bad, as, as with most things. But me, I never missed a day of work. Um, I came to an empty building a lot, <laughs> um, which was quite restful, actually. I could get a lot done. Um, but no, I, I think that we reinvented what we could do. Like most people, we couldn't have live events, so we Zoomed. You know, we couldn't do protests in the street for many, many months. Um, so we drove our cars around with posters in the window or bicycles with posters in the window. Mm -hmm. uh, we did mask demonstrations. We went to slaughterhouses. Because you remember, President Trump declared that slaughterhouses were a vital part of the American economy and essential to our lives. And so while people were busy getting sick and dying working in them, we were actually outside them. And I remember some lovely activist in the snow walked to a slaughterhouse and stood there with a sign, you know, saying, think of the workers, think of the animals, um, you know, stop eating meat. So we just reinvented what we had to do, but we never, ever stopped at all. And we won victories during that time. So now I'm, I'm doing fine because I look back and see how far we've come. And that spurs me to keep going to see how far we can go. <laughs> did anything change for you personally over the last few years in dramatic ways? Like, did you, was, was the last few years a challenge for you? Was it an opportunity where you, I mean, it, it sounds kind of eerie being <laughs> in an office by yourself day after day, you know, but 
And you strike me as a pretty extroverted person who, who gets energy from other people. At least that's a sense I get. Is that true? Are you extroverted? Do you identify? No. <laughs> no, I have to be extroverted in many ways because I have to go out and talk uh, when we can. Sure. And, you know, I do those other things. Like I, I will force myself to be extroverted. I remember the very first time that I took a fur runway in New York and I thought, this an extroverted person could do this easily, but oh God, I'm going to have to do it. And so you do it, even if your knees are knocking and your teeth are chattering. But no, I prefer to be by myself with in my leisure time with a crossword puzzle and a cup of tea. So that's not exactly the image of an extroverted person. It is shocking to me because you have so much energy and you're, I, there are a lot of pink things people say about you that are true. They're great. Um, some things that they say about you that are not great and usually not true. Uh, but one of the things I've noted just from personal interactions with you is you have immense presence. I don't know if anyone's ever told you this in, in the following sense that a lot of people have conversations, especially busy people. You know, you talk to celebrities, politicians. I, I had my first experience of this when I went to CNN. Um, I worked at CNN when I was in, in, in college for a summer. And so I'm meeting all these like big time anchors who are on TV all the time and everyone's trying to get like Wolf Blitzer. And, and I was just stunned by how lacking in presence they were with most people. They're just constantly overwhelmed with all these people trying to talk to them. And, you know, you're talking, they don't look you in the eye. They clearly don't care at all what you have to say. And what has struck me about your interactions with, you know, you came to a conference we organized in Utah and hung out with a lot of our individual activists. We've been to a couple dinners together that you've always been kind and generous enough to, to hang out with some more people who are obviously really excited meeting your new Kirk. And it's really stunning to me how focused, like razor focused you are on every person when you're talking to them. It's, it's very impressive. Has anyone ever told you this? No, this but is a I, skill am, you have. I am impressed with anybody who does anything. I mean, frankly, I've been impressed with you from the start because you're energetic and you, you see the picture and you want to get things done and you strive through all sorts of challenges to get there. But I'm really so glad to meet anybody and I get ideas from them. I mean, you can't just sit in your room and things, yes, things come to you. But if you talk to other people, they say, they tell you stories, they tell you about their interactions. And so you get ideas and it's really marvelous. And I do think that it's very uh, a privilege to be able to buoy somebody up who thinks, gosh, okay, I've just been told that's good because it is good and I'll go and do more of it. So, mm -hmm. no, that's very natural to me, but I'm not a party girl. That reminds me of something that Jane McElvey, I think here's her name, she was on the Ezra Klein podcast recently. She's an old school org union organizer who actually was one of the leaders of the Smithfield campaign in, in North Carolina. So she's, she has common cause of animal rights activists. She said, the best activists and organizers see immense value in all their fellow activists. They, they really see something good in the activism everyone's doing. And, and it's genuine. You know, you can really show it because it's hard to organize people when you don't believe in their work. You don't believe in their ability to contribute if you're a cynic. So, but I'm still stunned that you're an introvert. Do you have any tips for like maintaining energy level in social situations? Like, do you use caffeine? Do you meditate? I mean, what do you do personally to maintain your energy level? Because how old are you, Ingrid? You look like you're 45, but I'm pretty sure. Yeah, you're yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at the crow's feet, right? Yes. <laughs> no, how, how do you maintain your energy level? Because how actually, how old are you? 73. Okay, so how do you maintain your focus and energy level at 73 when all these people are depending on you? When you get to be 73, you'll realize that if you're lucky enough not to have any physical ailments, that it's just the same as being 16. It's absolutely no That's difference. Great. And I remember my father saying to me long, long ago, he said, you know, when you get to be my age, don't put people down because you think that they're past it or they're all, he says, I'm the same as I was as a young man. And huh. now I know what he means huh. because while I may not know some contemporary things that are happening in music or, you know, films or things like that. Are you saying you're not on TikTok, Ingrid? You're not browsing TikTok every day? I mean, what are you doing? No. Oh, I was ashamed to say that I, I am my grandmother in, when it comes to technical things. And luckily, I have so many young people who are working here that it doesn't matter. But um, the young people also don't know the things that we know from before. So it's a great match. You know, I give you some, you give me some. Here we're all in the mix together. I, I actually think one of the great failings of progressive movements is not embracing the wisdom of 
of the folks who came before us, both prior generations of actives who've written accounts about how their social movement succeeded, but also just like the wisdom of the older people in our movements. Because a, a lot of the challenges you face are challenges someone else has done before. And you develop immense insight just from talking to someone. And you know, like, and, and I don't even think that's just true within our movement. I, I think talking to people who've been civil rights activists, who've been gay rights activists, has been so, so valuable for me. And I always think to myself, damn, I, I wish I had done this earlier. Um, but let's, let's talk about your book, because, you know, the uh, Free the Animals, the 30th year anniversary edition is coming out. It's got an intro by Joaquin Phoenix, right? Um, and I have to confess, I tried to reread it. I read it a long time ago, and it's, it's a great book. And it's, to me, there's, there's two books that are sort of the foundational books of the animal rights movement. One is obviously Animal Liberation, which sets out the philosophy of animal rights. But philosophy isn't alone, right? It's not sufficient to motivate a movement. It's not sufficient to create change. To create change, you need powerful stories. And this is a powerful fucking story. Um, so what, I don't want to give it away, though. So tell me, tell me how you decided to write this book. and Because and, this is in the early 1980s. PETA is already formed, right? And you decide you're just going to take some time to write a book. Is it just because you meet Valerie and Kim and some of these folks and, and Ronnie, obviously, and say, hey, this story needs to be told? What, what inspired you to write this? I think it was a story that definitely needed to be told then because people would say they knew who the Animal Liberation Front was, you know, the name. Um, but they would often say, well, I just don't agree with that because they're breaking the law. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, you know, not only that isn't anybody's business, they'll do what they're going to do. The big question is, what are you doing within the law, if you like, um, to, to make change? But I wanted people to actually see why they did it and who they were. I couldn't give their real names. I had to change some things about them because, believe it or not, even today, the statute of limitations on some felonies in some states has not expired. Yeah. So I had to mess with that. But everything in it is the exact details of the horrors in the laboratories that they saw that justifies, in my view, why they decided we can't just sit here and do nothing. We can't write a polite letter. We have to go in and get those animals out. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel that today it's as important, if not more important, because while a lot of those experiments were stopped and a lot of those vivisectors never could hold their heads up high again, they weren't these fabulous scientists that they had built themselves up to be, and they got their grants suspended. A lot of the things that were going on, like head bashing experiments, drowning experiments, are still funded by the National Institutes of Health today. And unless everybody figures it out, and that's why the book, I think, will help them do that, they won't get involved and they need to. You can go to the grocery store, Wayne, you know, and you see row after row of different kinds of plant-based milk. Mm -hmm. It's right in front of you. You can make a choice then and there. Same with meat, same with clothing, same with cosmetics. But nobody goes into the labs unless we send an undercover investigator or back then the Animal Liberation Front got the animals out, they got videos out, they got photographs out. But one thing I did try to do, and it wasn't hard to do, was make it an uplifting book because every fact is true, every animal, every person, every every raid is real, but every one ends with a happy ending. The animals are out, the experiment is stopped. So it really makes you feel, there's a point to this, we can get this done. And that's the kind of easy read I wanted people to feel facts, but also heartening. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I think that's so crucial. I had this sociologist at Stanford, Doug McAdam on the podcast, and he coined this concept of cognitive liberation about 30 years ago when he was getting started as a sociologist. And the idea behind it is basically two pieces. One is movements need anger. Obviously, you have to have some shared grievance that there's something wrong in the world. We got to go change but then they need to have a sense of collective power too, that we have the ability to actually change this. You know? And if you don't have both of those, it's not enough to only have the anger, it's not only to, enough to have only the sense of collective power, it's those two together that create the conditions for a social movement to create massive change. But um, I wanna ask you just on a personal level, at the time, in the late 1970s, 1980s, you're a shelter director at the Washington DC Animal Shelter, right? You're 
pretty much working within the system. You know, not like a criminal or a lawbreaker or anyone who <laughs> necessarily, like, I don't think you have any tattoos. Not that, you know, plenty of people have tattoos and don't break the law for the record. I'm not trying to. And I, I actually do. You do have a tattoo. Okay. Well, you have some, but you don't appear to be the sort of person who would, you know, put on a balaclava. And by the way, thanks for the gift. When you sent me the book, I appreciated that. <laughs> I won't say it. I'll say, I won't say what it is. It's between me and Ingrid, I, I, but I appreciated the gift. But what was it about your personal background in life that made you open to this? Because I, I actually feel like the animal rights movement in the last 10 or so years has moved in kind of the opposite direction. It's become more and more moderate. And it's, it's weird because we've become more strident on Twitter, but in terms of our actions, we've become less willing to take big risks. And for you in the 1980s, when the animal rights movement has just begun, there's not even a history for you to cite and say like, yes, this works. It's worth it. You know, like let's take on these huge risks and let's support these folks. And one of the things that's most striking about PETA that I have always appreciated and will appreciate until the day I die. And I think a lot of this comes from you is just your support for direct action, your willingness to say, look, whatever the rules are, these rules aren't benefiting the animals and we have to do whatever it takes to help these animals. So, I mean, what was in your background that allowed you to be open to that? Oh, I was always a feisty child. My mother said, if Jesus descended on earth, I'd, I'd argue with him. So, <laughs> um, but there's a big difference between arguing and supporting direct action that's illegal. I mean, were you scared when you wrote this book? Were you, were you thinking, hey, you know, I've got a career and a life. You know, maybe I shouldn't be doing these sorts of things or even talking about these sorts of things. No, I never thought that. What I mean by that is I'd argue with anybody, I think she meant, is I, I had a strong sense of justice, a strong sense of fairness. Um, part of my childhood was in colonial, post-colonial India, and I saw a lot of discrimination. And I felt ashamed for the way some uh, people treated other people. Um, and I always cared about animals. I felt there was grave injustice. Even if I wasn't vegetarian, I had a... My favorite hat was made of a wild cat's fur. I rode horses because I didn't connect the dots. But in my heart of hearts, you know, animals meant a lot to me and I didn't like people yelling at them or overriding them or these kinds of things. So when I read Peter Singer's book and he opened my eyes and said, hang on a minute, it's not just dogs and cats and horses and, you know, baby birds who fall from the nest. We are all of us in this together. We all feel pain and love and fear and loneliness and all those things. They are other nations like us. And so I felt my sense of how unjustly animals were treated was amplified because of Peter Singer's work. And I thought that's what I believe. So if someone had wrestled an animal away from someone who was abusing them, I was always on that side. It's just I hadn't seen enough or thought through enough how broad the implications were. So the Animal Liberation Front seemed natural to me. I mean, who was going to want to help the police put them in jail for getting our fellow um, individuals out of a hideous situation, visited upon them simply because of discrimination? Yeah. It was a no-brainer for me. I, I don't care. And I would think if, you know, when the FBI was after us and all the things that were happening, I thought, you can lock us up. You know, it's nothing. And I've always said that, and other people say that, it's nothing compared to what we're protesting against. Yeah. So it was a no-brainer. See, I, I read Animal Liberation early in my activist career, too. I mean, even before I was an activist, just because I was interested in animals. I think... I was just interested in animals, and I saw the book in a section about animals, and I was like, oh, that's interesting, animal liberation. What's this about? And the first sentence of the book is, or the first edition, I don't know if you remember this, but it's the sentence is, this is a book about the tyranny of human over non-human animals. And, and I put it down, and I thought, this book is crazy. And Because even as an animal lover, even as someone who, I, I was obsessed with animals as a kid. You know, I loved my dogs so much. I went to every zoo I possibly could go to and I'd beg my parents to take me to petting zoos, you know, horse ride, whatever it was. If it involved animals, I was there. You know, the culture is so strong in making you think these very, very cruel and in some cases brutal forms of mistreatment are, are normal. That as an animal lover, I read that and I thought, no, Peter Singer has to be the person who's crazy. 
But it sounds like to you, it resonated pretty quickly and easily. I mean, it did leave a gnawing doubt. It's obviously I became an animal rights activist because I, I read the first sentence. I read like the four and I thought, this is a ridiculous book. I mean, he's, he's comparing human beings to animals. This is nonsense. Um, but it left like this gnawing doubt in my head about, wait a minute, you know, is, is there a point to this? And, and I like to think a lot of it was just rational that I read through the first chapter, the title, which is All Animals Are Equal, which is a great name for a chapter because it's true. And I like to think it was just like listening to those rational arguments that convinced me. But honestly, a lot of what convinced me was just the grim descriptions of experiments and factory farms through the rest of the book. The philosophy is fantastic, but the descriptions of just how brutal it is and, and just learning how much of what we see in animals, whether it's at zoos, at the grocery store counter, you know, the way the pharmaceutical companies describe their experiments is just puffery. It's just some, in many cases, just outright fraud. You know, and the way fathers think that their sons can't develop properly unless they hunt and they fish. Animal killing I, animals. No, absolutely. We used to fish, and and I I cared about animals in that limited way that one does before somebody says hello. What are you doing? And so I would say to fishermen, you need to kill the fish quickly. I'd walk along the bridge where I was fishing and say, don't just put a a hook through their mouth and put them in water. You need to kill them quickly. Don't prolong their suffering. And I think back and I think, what an incomplete thought that was. What was wrong with me? And like (laughs) you, it was a choice. When I was a child, you could take a taxi or you could take what's called a tonga, you know, a horse-drawn cart. I would always ask my mother, oh, we must take the horse. We must take the horse because I loved horses. Because you loved horses. Wow. Bridget Brophy says, you know, we have such compartmentalized brains is that we see things in very narrow corridors of thought, and we don't penetrate those corridors to meld everything together and to see a complete picture. So Mm. it's just the same as you can be absolutely adamantly opposed to sexism, and then you don't see racism or speciesism, or you can be an anti-racist who throws stones at people who are um, asking for gay rights. And you think, hello, it's one big pie. Don't just take a slice. Let's look at the principle behind all this and let's go for the whole shebang. Let's be against injustice. Is that really so hard? Who cares who the injustice is against? Let's be against injustice. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it is weird that people don't complete that thought when they're thinking about humane meat or, oh, you know, the beagles deserve exercise. You know, there's a requirement under the annual Welfare Act regulations that beagles deserve exercise or have a right to exercise. It's like, well, the right to exercise, why don't they have a right just not to live in a cage in the first place? You know, why, why, why do they have not have a right to not be force-fed laundry detergent until they vomit blood and die? It's just, <laughs> if you're concerned about their ability to go outside and run around for a few minutes, you know, it seems like these other concerns would also be implicated, but the culture does a lot, a lot of work preventing us from thinking those things. We're, we're supposed to be the thinking animal. We're so pompous that we call ourselves the thinking animal. And I find more and more that we just don't think. Yeah. It takes a lot to get us to think. And you mentioned that this animal liberation idea was perhaps slowly dawning on you, subconsciously dawning on you. And you know, I always say that the advertisers learned this long time ago, you have to usually hear the same thought seven times before yeah. it registers. Now, that's not really thoughtful. It's a process. So when activists are saying to me, oh, I spoke to so-and-so and I didn't change her mind, she got defensive, I think, yeah, 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 but they, only six more times to go. Or yeah. you might have been the one just before the tipping point. Yeah. So, Yeah. It's weird how pattern and rigid our brain is. And when I think about me when I was 16, 17 years old, like a huge animal lover who's eating. I mean, I was like on an all meat diet. I was a carnivore. I was like keto, carny diet, Atkins diet before it even existed. I, you can ask my parents. It's like I come home, I eat a sack of bologna. All I ate was meat. Um, and I thought it was fine. You know, I, and I loved animals at the same time. And I just, I, I sometimes wonder what else in my thinking is very patterned and rigid. You know, what else am I really missing in the world? And it's, it's a little disconcerting to think about it because you start doubting everything. But sometimes being in a state of doubt is, is a good state. I want to ask you, I actually did not know until, or actually, maybe I did know, but I've forgotten. But you're, you had this experience in India. Why were you and your family in India? Uh, my father was a navigational engineer and China was thinking of invading India and the northern, you know, regions. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. They fought a couple wars. Yeah, yeah. It was a pending war. Mm -hmm. And my father being a navigational engineer, he actually designed bombing systems. Okay. So we went to India. He was on loan from the British government to the Indian government for that conflict. And I was actually, they sent me, this is very odd. They sent me to a boarding school in the North. Hmm. (laughs) I thought they may not have liked me. I don't know. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That sounds like not the best place to be in a potential conflict between China and India. No. And it was a conflict. Did they give you a gun? (laughs) No, but what they gave us was knitting needles and we had to knit socks for the Indian infantry to keep them warm in the Himalayas. Yeah. Wow. Did you meet vegetarians? I mean, you must have. There must have been lots of vegetarians, no? Tons of them. Tons of them. Not in my school, let me say that. Although, because the nuns were cutting costs, we often ate vegetarian, which I think is great for your future health, if nothing else. So we had this tamarind root soup that they served us over rice. Ooh, that sounds really good. (laughs) Indian food is the best cuisine. And I've heard... As good as it is in the United States, going to India is is like a magical adventure for vegetarians and vegans. Um, I've also heard sometimes veganism can be hard because they put a lot of butter and stuff. But uh, there, it's a milk addiction is very very strong. But you know we have Peter India, and we now have um, soy milks and almond milks in many coffee shops in big cities like Mumbai and, and yeah. Delhi. Um, and if you look at the basic diet, the old Indian diet, it's pulses, grains you know, legumes, things like that. It's not meat. What the problem is, is these young Indians from two generations ago started to go West and they started to not only want blue jeans and records from the West, but they also wanted the Western diet. And they felt that people would look down their nose at them in the West if they didn't eat meat. So they started eating meat. And now it's a huge part of of the culture, except for grandparents. Yeah, I saw that in grad school. There, I was in grad school in economics, and there's a lot of Indian people in economics, and a lot of them went to you know wonderful universities in India and had lived their entire lives vegetarian, and their families all vegetarian. And then it's just kind of shocking how quickly culture can change people, you know. And it it tells you what you said about us not being the most thoughtful animals. I think is true. Uh, what I think is our redeeming characteristic is that as a social species, collectively, we can be quite smart. Now, collectively, we can also be quite stupid. But when we put our intelligence together and we really do decide this is going to be a priority for our species to think about something, I think we get to good answers. And one of the problems of animals is, and really nature more broadly, if you look at the climate crisis, is historically, I mean, the environmental movement, the animal rights movement, are fairly recent movements. They haven't existed as political forces in the United States until fairly recently. And Singer's book was published in 1975. PETA came into existence. PETA was 1979, 1981? 80. 80. 80, okay. Yeah, and and uh, when we haven't put our mind and our collective efforts into thinking about things collectively, we don't get to good answers. In fact, we take ourselves off the cliff. You said earlier that you had some experiences of discrimination in India are saying this. Can you tell me more about that? Was it against animals, against human beings, all of the above? Oh, no, I had personal experiences, but I was actually talking about um, how ex-Raj people, British people, Mm. looked down on on Indians and just, uh, you know, it was a very much servant-master culture even then when I was a little girl. And I was called Memsab or Chota Memsab, the little lady, you know, it was all just very hierarchical and Mm. it bothered me. Um, And obviously I worked with my mother on the streets because she was a lady of leisure. Mm. And so she was a volunteer for everything from unwed mothers to Mother Teresa to leper colonies. And we took in stray animals, stray people, refugees, the works. So it was that. But when people talk about, you know, white elitism, and I understand all that, obviously, but it's a bit narrow because when I was young, um, I was often the only white child that anybody had ever seen in a village. Mm. And, you know, people would think I was stupid or I was funny. I didn't speak their language. Mm-hmm. Um, I looked different. Um, I wasn't exactly like them. And I always remember a little boy in a village came up and poked me really sharply with a stick. <laughs> <laughs> he wanted to see, you know, like, does it move? Does it scream? Does it, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, it just depends. It's all circumstantial. It's all your bias of wherever the hell you are. And whatever human you are, you need to just open your mind. 
Yeah. I, a couple of years ago, I emceed a wedding uh, between my two friends, one who's Chinese, one who's Vietnamese. Uh, and we, we arrive at the wedding, and I, I'm with my good buddy, Ronnie, who you've met before, I think. I think he was at that dinner. He's a co-founder of Direct Action Everywhere. And he is, he's as white as white can be. I mean, he's like, <laughs> he looks white. He's got a beard. He looks like a hipster. And Ronnie looked so lonely and confused over the course of that four-hour wedding, just like walking around because everyone's speaking Vietnamese on one side, Chinese on the other side. And he's just walking around wondering, what the hell do I do? And just standing in the corner by himself, just with wide eyes, like, what the hell is going on? So, yeah, it's, it, it is contextual. Um, and I think that... You know, the, one of the things that I think, whether it's speciesism or racism, has not been kind of, especially by the left, discussed enough is that these are not binaries. You know, it's like it's the world is a very black and white place right now where it, it, it you know, I, I think this is true even of animal rights. Like I, not every vegan is perfect. You know, vegans do bad things, too, sometimes. And, and not every slaughterhouse worker is evil. You know, they're, they're people like Howard Lyman or... You know, race Renee Kingsonen, who really do change, and you know the binary thinking of of progressive movements, especially right now. Uh, not that you know the right is terrible about this too, but I think so. It's maybe just the entire political system has become so binary in its thinking, um, and I don't feel like that was true uh, twenty years ago. I don't know if you agree, but do you think it's always been that way, or do you think? No, I mean people are people, and humans don't evolve that much. And I think it depends how much leeway they have to be nasty or nice. Mm. Uh, I mean, the fact was we didn't have the internet back then sure. when um, Free the Animals was written or Peter was founded, or and so we had one-on-one -on -one interactions with people, and there was a level of politeness that you uh, somehow find thrown out of the window much of today. People think nothing of giving the finger to other motorists, cutting them off, um, saying disgusting, racist, sexist, and anti-everything uh, rhetoric to them online. They're you know, hidden away and they can do it or they can do it in public. Yeah. People are afraid of other people. They might pull a gun, they might pull a knife. I was walking down the street on Sunday morning about seven o'clock in the morning and a man came up, I mean, I'm 73. A man came up towards me and smacked me hard on the backside. Wow. And he thought, I just kept walking. I mean, I'm not going to get into an altercation. Obviously, I'm not, I was just lucky he didn't have a weapon or didn't use it. And this kind of thing has now become almost normal, is that you can be as rude as your basest instincts. And the other thing that has gone away, which I do believe is a contributing factor, is years ago, there were talk shows where you could actually talk, you could discuss. Somebody asked something, you answered it, they then picked up on that, and this thread was expanded upon. There was some reasoning behind it. Now it's sound bites mm -hmm. and it's tiny bits of information, this sort of TikToky thing of, you know, I, I only have what, five, five seconds, 10 seconds, 15 seconds attention span. Yeah. So I believe that that is a very escalating, unhelpful uh, factor today. Yeah, I think there's some research showing that I, I don't remember the exact statistic, but a, a tweet that has an angry word in it is like 100 percent more likely to be to be shared. And, and many I'm, I'm guessing you're not on Facebook. I'm actually not even on Facebook that often, but probably all of us have had this experience of going on Facebook and there's some thread where people are yelling at each other that keeps popping up and we keep reading it. <laughs> we can't stop because it's just, there's, I think there's something just in our very primitive monkey brains. Yeah. We want to know, like, I want to know what the scandal is. What are these people fighting about? What are they arguing about? And, and what does it mean for me? You know? And I think, I, I don't know what you think is social media, but I think social media, well, it's done some tremendous things for our ability to reach people. Obviously, we don't have to rely on the mainstream media nearly as much. On net, if I could just cancel Facebook, I'd probably do it. Because I think yeah. it set us back so much in terms of solidarity, in terms of organizing, in terms of just basic human trust, including within movements. Like You see so much fighting in the animal rights movement and in other movements, triggered in part, at least, by social media. And I am so glad you brought that up because this is so relevant. Yeah. Um, tolerance is so important. People don't, you, you don't push a switch and someone becomes somebody different yeah. or takes what you're saying as gospel. 
it is a process. And it, it is heartbreaking to see in the animal rights movement that somebody says that some good needs to be done or some good has been done or some animal is in need. And instead of saying, even, well, I'm not sure about that, or there may be another, people just go, screw you. You are, and then they this spew this real vitriolic abuse at people. And if somebody holds a differing opinion, mm-hmm. I mean, what happened to trying to logic, argument, be intellectual, argue it out and just say, well, what about? And then have them say, well, no, actually this. And so you're both using your brains to try to figure out where do I really stand on this? Yeah. But no, it's now hateful word. Oh, well, you know, screw you. Yeah, the art of deliberation has definitely been, if not lost, certainly compromised by social media and this culture of polarization. And actually, this is one of the lessons you taught me. I think I shared this story with you, but do you remember the our first actual in-person contact ever? <laughs> Probably not. I don't remember what happened last Tuesday. This is very, very embarrassing for me. and um, And I'm a little ashamed about it because... The first time I met you, Ingrid, was when I was protesting you in 2008 after the Michael Vick situation, right? Um, and I was very upset about it. I've always loved pit bulls, and I've had pit bulls my entire life. And honestly, I didn't even dive that much into the details of what was happening. And I just, you know, sometimes you get emotionally caught up, and you don't think about the bigger picture, and you don't dive deep enough to understand what's actually going on, which I've done since then, and I very much regret protesting you for the record. But it's all right. It's all right. I, I, <laughs> I was actually at a protest in Chicago. Do you remember confronting someone at a protest in Chicago outside of Borders? Okay, so we got into a little argument over pit bulls, and then I got arrested. That was actually one of my first arrests. I know, it was ridiculous. Protesting opposition? Yeah. Well, no, but here's, here's the good thing. Here's the good thing. Um, I think years later, you know, when I, when I reached out to be, and I, you know, again, I was a young kid at the time, emotional, um, had not dived deep, didn't understand the importance of movement solidarity, didn't, didn't understand how to handle disagreements. Like you and I might have, and I'm actually pretty sure we would have disagreements about various policies, but there's a bigger picture and there's so much more we share. And I remember years later, cause I, I decided, okay, I'm mad at PETA now. I've been a very dedicated activist for, you know, seven years at that point, six years. And it said, especially after I got arrested, it wasn't even your fault. I got arrested. It was just a, it's actually a cop who pushed me when I was leafleting outside. And I was a young law professor at the time, and I knew my rights. I was like, you can't just push me. And so I just said, officer, that's assault. And he threw me in jail for it, just for saying. But, but the, the lesson in tolerance you taught me is, many years later when we started DXC, um, I thought, man, we're doing something that's pretty cool, and we got all these grassroots activists. What would really help us is if Peter <laughs> amplified our work. And so I reached out to Pete, and I think I even reached out to you personally at some level at some point, and you were just so peaceful and calm and kind about it, even though I had not been the best ally to Pete over the years. And I've actually heard this from many people um, over the years, that Ingrid doesn't hold grudges. She, she works with people. Yeah, she doesn't hold grudges, even if you crossed her in the past, even if you've had a conflict, even if you've disagreed very fiercely. She does very objectively look at the situation and ask, is this person helping animals? And if they are, I'm going to help them. And, and that is, so two things you taught me from that experience. One is tolerance, right? Just understand there are going to be disagreements. We got to work them out. We're, it's a small movement. And, you know, don't let your emotions carry you away because if we did that, we'd always all be fighting. And this is true of interpersonal relationships too, whether it's your boyfriend, your dad, you know, you can't let something that you're upset about just destroy your relationship with someone who's doing good work. But, but secondly, and, and, and maybe even more importantly in the long term, is whenever I'm looking out at the world, I always try to be objective about things and say, look, it's not about what's in it for me or how I feel about this person or situation. It's just about whether this helps animals. And, and I think that's such an important mentality to have both individually and organizationally. And I think it's one of the things you've done very well with PETA culture. It's very mission-focused, very animal-focused. Thank you. We don't allow personal attacks. We don't tolerate them, really. That's where we're intolerant. Um, But we like to say, nobody is a clone of you. You know, you weren't made in a basement with a whole bunch of other people. Everybody has some differences. And what you said about family is true. It's very hard sometimes to 
to realize that somebody you love or somebody that you're part of uh, biologically doesn't share all your feel all your um, beliefs. Um, but yeah, I, I I think that the big thing is is let me give you an example. There was a man. I'll give his real name is Mike Handley. Years mm -hmm. ago. And Mike was driving along on our Beltway 495 here, and he found a dog who'd been hit by a car and was dying. And Mike um, loved dogs. He had dachshunds. He'd always had purebred dogs, you know, things we don't agree with with dogs. But he wanted to help this dog. This is before, as I say, cell phones. So he had to leave the dog and drive and find a payphone. He had to get off the Beltway, find a payphone. He did. He got through to the police. They said, oh, we can't help you. You'll have to find a vet that's open. He then got the phone book and was calling and couldn't find a vet that was open. He couldn't find a shelter. He didn't know which county he was exactly in. And so he came back onto the Beltway, which took time, and he shot the dog to death, which was the best, kindest thing he could do. The dog had been dying for and, and pain. He then called me. I worked at the Washington Humane Society. He found me and he said, can we work together and get a system, I'll appear on TV, he said, and I'll hold a card with a phone number people can put in their wallets. And if you will operate a service that anywhere in this whole big region, if you call that one number, there'll be someone 24 hours a day who will tell you who your nearest vet or animal shelter is. I said, yes. I then found out Mike was the spokesperson for the NRA. He was wow. a big, big hunter, big gun nut, total racist, sexist, and I thought that animal rights was the stupidest thing he had ever heard. Mm. We worked together on that project. He would only meet me to talk about the project at the steak and egg kitchen, yeah. <laughs> where they served nothing. When Mike eventually died, he had raised a 17-year-old, his child was 17 when he died. He had raised that child as a vegan. He had resigned from the NRA. Wow. He, had, he now understood the principle of rights and so on. And I think if Mike could change, anybody can change. Yeah. If I, as a dyed-in-the-wall meat-eater as a child and a fur wearer and a fisherman, can change, anybody can change. So nobody should be written off. And most people aren't as extreme as Mike was. And yet he came full circle for, he came all the way around and became an animal rights proponent. So yeah. give people a break, talk them through it, let the seeds germinate, give them all the help you can, feed them, you know, give them materials, show films, chat, be respectful, and just hope that someday the penny will drop. Yeah, that's an art that's really been lost in, in today's culture and, and activism. Have you heard of this guy, Daryl Davis, who talks to, he's a black man who befriends members of the KKK? Yes, he's yes. Convinced, he's convinced hundreds of people, and it's not, you know, obviously he's black, so it's not like he stands down from his positions. It's not that he's giving up his position that, no, I mean, we're equal and we're deserving of dignity just as you are. It's that he goes into it just with such a different perspective. Instead of just saying instantly, you know, my goal is to destroy you and tear you down as an individual. Let's, let's have a conversation about this. Let's deliberate. And he's had an extraordinary success. And, you know, one of my great fears about the entire world, whether it's Russia and Ukraine, China and Taiwan, even animal rights activists, vegans and non-vegans, is that we're not seemingly able to talk <laughs> to each other, that talking to someone you disagree with is now perceived as disloyalty and betrayal. And... You know, I, honestly, one of the most absurd instances of this in recent history for me, and it, it was what happened to you at Google. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I just thought, and I know some of the people were involved in that at Google, and it's just, I, I, I don't even understand what the critique was. And maybe you, if you're willing to, you could share the story of what happened because it's an interesting story. But I read the Wall Street Journal article. I talked to some of the folks. But the idea that these hyper elite, very privileged, seemingly educated Google employees could not stomach to even hear your perspective right i mean critique it for sure it was completely true. crazy way yeah. it was it was actually because they canceled it as you're walking in the building according to story oh yeah right? i, I yeah. pulled into the parking lot having flown from washington to california and driven to the google campus and i had spoken there before hmm. but the mistake as i see 
was the title of the talk, which I can't remember exactly, but it was sort of why, if we're against racism and sexism, we should be for animal rights or something, or, you know, why black liberationists should be animal liberationists or something like that. And uh, Google had a group on campus that I'm sure must have done good work, but without asking me anything about the talk, without looking at the talk, which is all about the evils of racism and the evils of all these isms mm-hmm. um, and how we should all be in it together. They decided they weren't going to have a white woman come and give a talk that, about animal rights. And nobody had the courtesy to do anything other than when I arrived there, they had put a canceled sign on the door. That was it. Wow. Um, I, I then I showed the talk to the people who were supposedly in charge. You couldn't talk to them in person. Yeah. You had to deal with them on the phone. And I sent them the visuals from the from the talk. I sent them the talk and I said, you can't find any fault with this. It is totally supportive yeah. of you know all liberation struggles. Um anyway, I ate the airfare and uh, <laughs> and the time, everything else, and I could never get anywhere. The head of Google, the, who cared? Yeah, and it's it's in the years since then. Actually, there have been some accounts of, of all the conflict at Google over the last few years, and how, in, in many ways, a lot of people cite that as one of the beginnings because I think they actually ended Google Talks after yes. that. They said, "Okay, our employees can't agree on stuff enough to even have a talk." And in my view of this is, I didn't see the presentation. I don't know what was in it. And and maybe some of the critics were right. But the idea, even if they were right, the idea that we cannot even stomach to listen to it, you know? Like, to me, the right approach is, okay, if you think there's... Because, you know, racism manifests in all sorts of weirs. I feel like everybody's racist in some ways. I mean, it's just... We're all species as racist. It's that thing of they absolutely, said absolutely. If if it was between your neighbor's child and your child, yeah. one had to die. I mean, nobody can help that. That's an innate biology. Yeah. But yeah. I think Wayne, this was perhaps it's like finding the, the first person who had COVID. I think this was the first example of cancel culture at Google. No, I think it actually was, you know, because it was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal and it's been it's been really blowing up at the company since then. And I know a lot of people work at Google are afraid, you know, just as ordinary employees, just not even as active, not even speaking, just saying, you know, and, and the problem is for, for marginalized movements and communities, it's always going to be the people who have less power who are, who are most, and, and this is why when I talk to social justice activists about things like freedom of speech, about the importance of deliberative cultures, I always say to them that, look, in this instance, maybe you're right that this speaker is a powerful speaker that it would be good to cancel them and get rid of them. But once you develop that infrastructure of power, and, and Glenn Greenwald, love him or hate him, he's written a lot about this over the last couple of years, and, and I love Glenn. I mean, on a personal level, I just think, have you met him before? You you and Glenn would love each other. He's, he's so kind, and yeah. I always worry about him being where he is in Brazil. Oh, it's a very dangerous place for him. I, you know, literally, I mean, armed men on the streets of Rio de Janeiro who want to murder him because he's he's part of the opposition there. But... Glenn makes this point very well. And you're right. He is, notwithstanding how aggressive he is on Twitter, and he is very aggressive on Twitter. And honestly, I read his stuff and I'm like, whoa, that's that's pretty intense. I was terrified when I first met him just because I thought this is such an intense, angry person. And am I going to say something? He's going to. But he is such a gentle soul. He's yeah. like, he had, we actually had a beagle who was rescued from a lab at our house that day because uh, he had written about beagles rescued from labs. And I think he actually covered some of Peter's work, our work in that piece. And just seeing him interact with the animals in such a gentle way and how present he was with them, how generous he was with all the activists, how willing he was to have conversations. Um, and just all that has been lost. And it's just because we see the world in such black and white terms. Someone is on the other side of some issue and they must be a bad person. And you don't realize that this person, like your friend, you said the, the NRI gay, his name was Mark? Mike. Mike, Mike, I'm sorry. Or, or maybe you oppose Glenn on some issue. You oppose Ingrid on some issue. You think Ingrid's not right about animal rights or about racism, for that matter. The basic assumptions of good faith that I think are the glue that holds the entire species together are disappearing. And it's scary to me because I think at the end of the day, it is going to be the powerless. It's going to be, it's not going to be the billionaires, the people who have a lot of current mainstream influence who suffer the most. It's going to be people like animals, um, like refugees, um, even even like vegans. Like vegans are not a powerful group at Google. In in a world where 
for saying the wrong things or being unpopular, you're punished very severely. It's going to be the vegans who feel silenced and feel like I can't say anything. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, what are your thoughts? What do we do about that? How do we create <laughs> a more forgiving, deliberative culture, especially within movements, you know, within movements, I feel like, why can't we be more forgiving of each other and more open to each other? What you're doing is challenging the way it has become. And so am I, is that sure. we have to just keep saying, look, um, I mean, the other day, uh, I was at a protest at Dulles Airport about Egypt Air, because they still ship monkeys to experimentation. And they just shipped, I think, 170 some monkeys, I may have the figure wrong, from Mauritius, and many of them had died and so on. Anyhow, uh, this policeman was so officious. I mean, all we're doing is standing there with a sign. We're not interfering with anybody, just making a point. He was so officious. He said, I hate Peter, I hunt. Mm. <laughs> I, I tried to engage him, I said, well, okay, so you hunt, you know, but are you in favor of cruelty to animals generally? I mean, is that the point you're trying to make? And so I couldn't actually engage him because he was just so locked off. Yeah. But you have to give it a whirl. You have to try. I mean, I talk to people who are fishing along the, the river where Norfolk, we have, we have an office there, Pete has an office. And I talk to them all the time. And quite often, I actually get a conversation going. And I talk to them about lips, the sensitivity of fish's lips and this and the other, things they don't necessarily know. Some may laugh and spit and uh, say something bad, but some absorb some of this. And I wish somebody had come along and done that to me when I was fishing. So I do believe we have to try and we have to try and encourage people not to be nervous. You know, here we are in a country where I used to be able to say they won't shoot you if you say something they disagree with, but I can't say that anymore. Um, but where if, you're, if you try to start a dialogue, you may get nowhere and you can just say, all right, thanks, we'll just have to agree to disagree. But please, you're not going to be hung upside down and have your fingernails peeled pulled off try to as one human being to another to see if you can make any inroads and see where you go i mean if you end up being a hunter after the conversation then it didn't go well but there you go. <laughs> that doesn't happen too often yeah one of the great reasons that i i have confidence in the animal rights movement is i really do think the good thing is when we do try and have those deliberations i'm a believer that there are right moral answers to questions and that when people reflect on them they actually do reach the right conclusions and so the more we can get to the issue on the table and the more we can have those real deliberations the more success we'll have and the animals will too um, i want to be respectful of your time so i just want but i if i could just ask one last question i often ask our guests it's one o'clock can i ask you one more question ingrid is that right okay so last question is you've been an activist now for well over 30 40 years 40 years yeah more than that more than that, because you were already an activist. I mean, even when you were shelter director in, in D.C., I'm sure you were doing activism and helping animals. What is one thing that most people don't know about change that you've learned over the last 40 years? Boy, that's an easy question, isn't it? Just the one thing? <laughs> what's, what's one important thing that you say to yourself, you know, whether it's young activists or old, like, if only they knew this. Like, what, if this is, this is something I learned 20 years ago or 40 years ago when I was shelter director when we started PETA, or maybe I learned this recently in the Ambigu case. This is something I really learned about change, and I wish more people knew this. What's, what's something that you think more people need to know? Well, I don't know. I can't give you a clever answer to that. I would just say, you know, I think history is a great teacher if you learn from it. And my, for myself, studying things like the um, first people's struggles and the uh, struggles of the social justice movements throughout history, even back to chimney sweep, children being sent up the chimneys and getting uh, lung disease. Mm -hmm. If you learn about that and you see that just one or two people stepped forward and had an idea and they could do, they, they thought they might be able to do something. They weren't really sure, but mm -hmm. they gave it a go. And I think that self-confidence in the fact that if you don't do anything, nothing will happen. But yeah. if you do something, something might happen is a life principle. And something you can live by is just say, I may fall flat on my face. I may forget a crucial thing to say here, or I may run into the wrong person, but I'm going to give it a go. 
And I really think history shows that that is what has changed us for the better. I'm afraid it's also what's changed us for the worse. So we had to do, those of us who want to do good, twice as much of it to combat the people who are doing it for the wrong reasons. Absolutely. Absolutely. Those are wise, inspiring words. And thank you so much for sharing some time and your thoughts and stories. Um, go to PETA.org, their website, PETA's on Facebook, all the social media platforms, and check out Free the Animals. I, I wasn't exaggerating when I said these are the two foundational books of the animal rights movement, in my view, published around the same time in the late mid to late 70s and early 80s. Um, Singer's book, Animal Liberation, provides a philosophical foundation. Free the Animals has the stories. So check it out. It's a fascinating book. Thank you, Ingrid. Any final thoughts you want to share? No, thank you for everything you do, Wayne. And good luck to everybody out there in anything they do. And our materials are free to everybody to this day. Please ask. Here, here. Take advantage. I did. I did for years and it helped me a lot. So, all right. Thank you, Ingrid. What's up, everybody? Hope you enjoyed that podcast as much as I did. Um, Ingrid's a super busy person running the largest animal rights organization in the world. Campaigns all over the globe. So just grateful to her for spending some time with us. If you enjoyed that podcast, as always, share it with a friend, rate it on whatever podcast app you're using. And as usual, I want to thank the team. You know, Dean Wersikowski helped with the setup of this and recording. Shalola Fakis, I think, is going to be editing this podcast right after I get done recording this outro. Um, Priya Sohani, Julie Waldrop, Ronnie Rose, uh, the entire team, Catherine Benz, everybody's been awesome, giving me suggestions for questions to ask. Uh, and I appreciate all of you. And, and then I appreciate the listeners and some of the questions I asked today were from the feedback chat. We created like a feedback WhatsApp chat for listeners to this podcast and people who are reading the blog, the simple heart and the feedback really does help. It, it gives me insight into what are the important questions that the world is interested in? What are the important questions that I'm interested in? And, and so I, I just appreciate all the engagement you all are providing and hope you're all doing okay. Okay. So that's all for this week and stay tuned for more because you're going to hear a lot more about this rebranding effort in the weeks to come. Thanks, everybody.